Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Thanks for tuning in. If you need more information, just go to jentaylor.net, where I have everything at your disposal from what it's like to live as a mom to 13 kids to my podcast, public speaking, coaching, or purchasing my book. All in one place, jentaylor.net, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Brian and Carrie. How are you two? We're great. We're great. Thrilled to be here. That was like in stereo. I know. We're great. <laughs> you guys have a website. It's brianandcarrie.live, which is astounding. Is that the best way to start finding you if people want to find you? Actually, no. Um, you know, you could definitely go through that port. But um, to be honest with you, the best place would be on Facebook. So okay. on Facebook, we have a page. It's called simply Brian and Carrie, and it's the ampersand. Um, and you can, that's the best way to find us. Uh, that's where, you know, our daily show goes out through. And if you message us privately into the inbox on our Facebook page, someone will be sure to get back to us, back to you, whether it's us or one of our ambassadors. Actually, that's true because I've done all of that. So in, <laughs> in part of my stalking research, um, I kind of go through the process on websites and you do, you do get back super fast. And then you already touched on the fact that you have a show. It's live five days a week. So start by telling me a little bit about that and how that got started. And, and cause that's all, you have a lot of free content. Mm. So I want to kind of, let's talk about the free content first. Mm. Sure. Well, I mean, I'll jump in. It's a very, uh, it's a very cool thing, serendipity that we're talking to you today about this because one year ago today was our very, very first episode ever. And we didn't actually air it because it was horrible and we were uh, train wrecks and nervous and awkward. But uh, the whole concept of live, um, you know, Carrie and I, we, we have never a shortage of words, uh, our relationship is exactly what it appears like on camera or on video or on audio. We get along great. We play off each other wonderfully. And we just got tuned into the idea that us doing a live stream would be a decent idea. I mean, literally, we thought, hey, let's give it a whirl. Yeah. And that's that's it. So yeah. we, we started out by taking Carrie's cell phone, propping it up in a garbage can, sitting on our living room floor and pressing go live mm -hmm. and just started talking. And we realized very quickly that we loved it. We loved the interaction. Uh, we loved uh, just being ourselves on camera without a script. And so it, it just kind of kept rolling. It was one day a week at first. We moved it to two days a week. In January of this year, we moved it to five days a week, and it became a thing, Brian and Carrie in the morning. And now it's kind of one of those phenoms that everyone talks about as an overnight success, but it's been a year of, of trial and consideration and lots of errors. Uh, but we love it. We love every second of it. Yeah. yeah, you know, I just want to add to, I think part of it is that, you know, we always knew that we loved, uh, you know, we love the stage. And when I say the stage, I mean that in so many different ways, you know, whether it's a stage presenting or it's a stage teaching or it's, you know, on a group coaching call, we just love delivering 
information to live audiences. So that was kind of what tipped our hats at let, let's give this live streaming thing a, you know, a try. Cause you know, everybody was live streaming. So like Ryan said, we set my phone up on a garbage can and we expected it. I remember it was like, let's just see, you know, we'll go for 10 minutes. And like 45 minutes later, we're like, maybe we should get off of this now. Right. Maybe, this is fun. you know, and for us, it was just so clear that it was a place, a zone where we were really happy and we just started doing more of it. And if I could, Jen, now, okay, so now you know us so well. Once you get us started with a question, we'll talk for like 17 yeah. No, it's good. It's good. And I've watched you and you do, you, you're very, well, one of the biggest success things I think is that it's genuine and raw. And it's very genuine and raw and people want to see that you admit if you've screwed something up or well that just happened or we're having a sound issue or like whatever it is you're very transparent about your mistakes and you do that through your website and your Facebook live and everything and I think that that's a huge attraction mm. you're just normal people but you know yeah this, you know this is your venue Absolutely. Right. You know, the thing for me is we're, and, and obviously I think everybody knows this, but we're all just normal people. Yeah. Right. And, and I think so many people who are out there who are either, you know, doing things live or doing shows, they, the person who they are in front of the camera, there's a discrepancy between who they are in front of the camera right. and who they are in, in real life. And, you know, Brian and I have met people like that. And that's not a judgment on people who choose to do that. Um, for, for us, like quite honestly, it's just, it's easier and it's more fulfilling and it's more fun to, to be yourself. Well, you know, and it's not, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's so much easier for us. We like it better, but you know, it's a funny thing. It's a personal preference and we completely understand that. We have a lot of friends and colleagues who do professional live streams that are very well choreographed. They're edited nicely, etc. But as much as I love, for example, Frank Sinatra, if you gave me an option to see Frank Sinatra live in his prime or Guns N' Roses live in theirs, I would go to a Guns N' Roses concert primarily because it was so raw. It was so energetic. They weren't choreographed. They weren't scripted. They just, they, they kind of recklessly but relentlessly gave you everything they had. And that's what we like to do. And I, I think quite frankly, it's a breath of fresh air for a lot of people who are used to overproduced live streams and choreographed videos. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, not only uh, you're, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That's absolutely true. And I'm, I'm the same way. Somebody recently asked me if I send you a questionnaire that you have to answer and send back and we go through it and I was like oh hell no oh no because I have I would much rather take it in a strange direction and have it be unexpected oh you want to talk about your porn addiction all of a sudden I'm, okay <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> you know because I would have never gotten that content without that yeah. and that's a content that makes us relatable to other people and it's that whole same thing where, you know, you have a Facebook persona, the real persona and the fake persona, and they should just, it'd be so much less exhausting if they were all real. So Agreed. I want to go back a little bit to when you guys met. Now, Brian, you have a daughter. Actually, no, Carrie's got two biological kids. I have no biological That's kids. That's not, okay. So I wanted to first, because in, there's something that you wrote about how your daughter's your best friend. So it's actually Carrie's daughter. It is. My stepdaughter, yeah. Got it. Okay. I wanted to clarify that because I remember when I looked through your stuff, I never saw anything about you. So you were in Chicago, mm -hmm. Brian, and Carrie was in Montreal. I'm from Vermont. 
So we used to go to Montreal. You're kind of smack in the middle of both of us. We're local. (laughs) (laughs) We would would go to Montreal in in, uh, college when we wanted to, you know, get off the grid back in the day. Or drink when you're younger than 21, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's really what that means. (laughs) That's all that that means. So how did you guys meet? Oh, it's a great story. You know, I, it's, it's actually a great story. It's not just a great story because it's, it's like our story. I just happen to really enjoy the story, to be honest. I think it, it, uh, it coincides with a lot of what we teach and what we talk about. But the long and the short is just this. Um, in my past career, I was a sports performance uh, consultant. And I was based in Chicago, and I had a company. And Carrie lived here in Montreal, and she works for a company. And Carrie's company hired me to come to Montreal to deliver a seminar. And so I came up, uh, oddly, with my girlfriend at the time. We flew, uh, we flew up to Montreal together and uh, delivered a two-day seminar, and Carrie was in the audience. And, I mean, I just fell stupid in love that weekend. But she was married with two kids, so I kind of just let it be. Uh, but that's, that, that was in 2006. That's how we met. Yeah, that's how we met. I can finish the story if you want to hear the rest of the yep, story. Yep, yeah, going. I figured, because that's like a total, like, leave you on a cliffhanger there. Um, yeah, I mean, that was in 2006, and we didn't have any real communication until 2009. Um, in the period of those two and a half years, we both, um, you know, I got I was divorced, um, not because of Brian coming up to Montreal <laughs> in 2006. <laughs> and um, he was no longer with the girl that he was with. And, you know, he, I remember he friend requested me on Facebook and it was such a moment for me. Cause like, he was like the like youth fitness guru of the world. And he was the, the person who was the CEO of the company I was certified under. So it was like a big deal. I remember thinking to myself, like Brian Grasso friend requested me, like, that's awesome. Uh, but you know, he would randomly like things of mine. And then I woke up on November 26, 2009. Wow. Um, <laughs> exactly. I know, I know, with um, a message in my inbox from him basically saying to me that, you know, I fell in love with you the day I met you, and I don't believe in, like, you know, going to the grave with things unspoken. So I have no expectations of this message, but I just wanted to let you know. And uh, it just kind of spiraled in a good way from there. We got on the phone a couple nights later, and I always say, like, the first phone call, we were like, oh, my gosh, I think this is it. And then the second phone call, we were like, yep, this is, this is it. Like, this is what people talk about. And then by the third phone call, we were figuring out how to get him up to Montreal. Exactly. Holy crap. So yeah. I, we were, I, well, you're going to love this. We were engaged um, before we had ever kissed. Yeah. You just knew. Yeah, which also means before we had sex. Yeah, well, I mean, you didn't have to, but yeah. You can't have sex without kissing, so I wasn't going to judgment call that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of where the story picks up online, where I could find information. You're in Montreal, French is the official language, uh, two kids, 17 hours apart. Brian, you had 10 months on your apartment, didn't speak French. Mm. You were in a thriving business. I mean, so, but it, so that was November 26th. And then on February 27th, you jumped in your car and yeah. drove to Montreal. hundred percent. Yes. That's exactly the way it happened. Um, I had a roommate uh, in Chicago. I had 10 months left to pay in my apartment. My life was great. I had uh, lots of money. My company was doing very, very well. Um, I just don't think you put a price tag on love. I don't think that anything you really want and is worth having in life uh, is ever going to be convenient. 
Um, so Carrie and I talked forever about the fact that when my uh, apartment lease was due, which was 10 months later, I was going to go ahead and move up to Montreal. But it was literally one night at around 11 o'clock in the evening. And it was a snowstorm in Chicago. February 27th, 2010. That <laughs> I had that date, actually. Yeah. I, I, I truly, I, uh, I, I put together a, uh, a little knapsack full of, I think I put in two pairs of pants, a couple of t-shirts, um, some socks and some underwear and a toothbrush. And I put it in the front seat of my Toyota Yaris because that's what I drove at the time. And I texted Carrie at 11 o'clock in the evening. I said, hey, I'll be there uh, in about 17 hours. I had enough. I had enough of thinking that life was going to wait uh, for me to make a decision and that there really shouldn't be any material reasons why two people in love can't be together. So I just literally made a decision that night and drove 17 hours and showed up at her door. Yeah. And I said, hey, nice place you got here. And I said, welcome home. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened from that point on? Because, you know, it would be great if it was all skipping and rainbows and love. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then the glass slipper and we're done. Um, yeah. But it doesn't generally go that way. You guys had a rough road ahead. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we went to that. You walked away from the business. You never went back. Right. Well, I mean, I sold the company uh, inevitably, which which uh, was a tough decision, but it was a good one in the end. I think that I love the way you're going with this, to be honest, because I think that we all get so conditioned. You mentioned the glass slipper. We get conditioned by the the, the storybook, the the Cinderella, all of. But we never really, we never get conditioned to the fact that, and Carrie loves to say this, it's a great quote, you fall in love, but you still have to create a relationship. And uh, it's our favorite part of the story to tell. Yes, it's tear jerky and lovely when we tell the first half, but the second half is where it all actually comes together. I had emotional and mental baggage, so did Carrie. And it took about three days for that baggage to start getting all over each other. Uh, I nearly walked out multiple times. Uh, I mean, we, we, I'll let you tell some of the specifics, but um, the road ahead was a challenging one. Uh, you know, it, 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 and everyone should know that. I want to restate, nothing you truly want is ever going to be convenient, and that includes love. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I, the, we're so transparent about this, and, you know, this is, it's been so many years, so, like, the emotional rawness of those moments have, have come and gone, yeah. you know? We're no longer attached to the emotion of them. But, you know, I, I think that we use the term emotional baggage all the time, and I think that that's actually become, unfortunately, one of those, like, you know, things that people say about relationships almost with like this judgment. Oh, you have so much baggage, right? But the reality is, is that we're all a product of our experiences. So we all have uh, limiting beliefs and unconscious stories and, and things that we, you know, some of us knew were there, but some of us didn't know where they were there. And for me and my, in our case, we got together and there was all, all kinds of like, I didn't even know that I had that limiting belief until I found myself in a relationship again for the first time in two and a half years. So the first two years were a lot of figuring it out. Yeah. A lot of intense moments, a lot of tears, a lot of, you know, Brian almost leaving me, begging him to stay. And we, you know, we used to always come back to the promise we made ourselves when we got together, which was we were going to make this work. And, you know, in those most difficult times, that's where we came back to and it didn't make it easy. It, it involved a lot of work. And, and again, I want to say, I think in relationships, people make the assumption that the work is hard. 
and that the work is so dreadful. But you know, when you want the best in life, I think you have to put in the best of yourself in order to receive it. I always feel like sometimes we, tell me if this is a good direction to go. You're at the checkout line at the grocery store and the lady says, how are you today? And you're not great. Now, it's okay to say, I'm doing well, thank you, how are you? And just be polite to get out of the conversation. But I feel sometimes like we put on our best face to people in that situation that we don't even know. And everybody at home kind of gets the leftovers. Mm. And it should really kind of be flipped. We don't need to say, I'm having a terrible day and I wish you wouldn't even talk to me. We don't mm. need to be rude. We can just quietly get out of the conversation and be polite and walk away. But that doesn't mean that the, the spouse and kids get the crumbs. You know, I actually was just talking to a client about that yesterday. And, you know, I, I think that there's that old saying that you take it out of the ones you love your love the most. And, you know, if I think if we were to strip that back to the, the understanding of what's going on in those situations, I think that with our loved ones, we feel the most safe and secure. And really what the problem is, is that we don't know how to express ourselves appropriately without quote unquote, taking it out on that person, right? So we're trying to be vulnerable. We're trying to release something that is causing us pain, but because we're not really equipped in life to deal with not like not being reactive, it ends up kind of like verbal diarrhea or reactive ninny coming out all over our spouse. But you know, in the end, it, there's a security there. And I think that in relationships, we have to learn how to communicate that and find ways to be non-reactive, but allow ourselves to be vulnerable because that's where we grow from. Agreed. Now, Carrie, your day job prior to let's call it PB, pre-Brian. Pre-Brian, I like it. <laughs> you are a licensed counselor and you work with kids with special needs. So how much, holy, I have a son who's autistic. I did foster care for 12 years. So I totally get how hard that is. I worked in the nonprofit sector with treatment level foster kids. How did that help the foundation of what you're doing now? Oh, I mean, it helped in every way conceivable. So, you know, I've been a clinical counselor for nearly 20 years. Um, I took a little, a little break from actual counseling to work um, as a youth conditioning specialist, was, which, you know, is actually where I met Brian. Um, but, you know, anybody who's been in the personal training realm knows that most personal training is counseling. So, you know, that, that was, um, you know, every single ounce of every single day from the time that I stepped foot into my career as a counselor forged the creation of where Brian and I are today. I'm a, I'm a huge observer in life. And I, and I think that for years I, I, you know, I, I take information in, I process the interaction of humans and the understanding of, you know, what reactions come from this and, you know, box things into like, okay, this makes sense. These people tend to do these things. And, you know, it really just formed and shaped everything that I, you know, I want to say like I was, I was ready and primed for what we were going to create based on all those years of experience. It just got poured into what we do now. And I would think Brian, the same thing with the fitness and sport education and everything you did you were you were working with olympic level athletes not like hey you want to train me down at the gym i'm a mom you know you it was it was a pretty big deal the people you were working with well i mean yeah i, I was a performance coach olympic athletes professional athletes making millions of dollars a year national team athletes who were hoping to represent their country or their countries at different events uh, there was a lot on the line uh, for those athletes, but whether they were amateur or professional, um, 
It's a very interesting thing. Uh, it actually reflects and mirrors exactly what Carrie just said. When you hear performance coach as it relates to sport, I think a lot of people conjure that you probably had a lot to do with the training or the physical prowess of these athletes. And in part, that was my job. Uh, but most assuredly, I can promise you, I've been asked the question a million times, what separates the gold from the silver medalist at a given Olympic Games? And the answer is always the, two, the, the half square foot of real estate between their ears. Mindset is it was 90% of what I did with those level athletes. I mean, you know, athletes, uh, aside from being legendary and heroic and all of our heroes, they're real people with real stress. Um, you get a baseball player going 0 for 27 who just signed a $10 million contract. All of a sudden, he has amnesia on how to hit a ball, and he's, he's on himself constantly. Those, that's just one case example, but everything I did back then was about human performance from a mentality standpoint. So it, it dovetailed entirely into what Carrie and I created. Who's the author? Of, of our program? No, I mean, it, I'm looking at your website while we're chatting. And so I'm seeing like <clears throat> bullet points of what you guys have done. And it's kind of both of you combined. There's screenwriter, best-selling author. Who's, who's that? That, that? Well, we're both best-selling authors, incidentally. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm a screen, I, I was a screenwriter. I think writing is my, more of my gig. Yeah, no, absolutely. I kind of enjoy the process. Actually, I don't. I hate it. But I'm good at it. So I do it. Whatever. <laughs> So we have a mutual friend. It's my book editor, and you met her through Joe Polish's Genius Network, and she's an editor by profession and a very, very good editor. And she brought home from Genius Network uh, your your journal. Yeah, yeah. And I might have uh, kleptoed that from her house. <laughs> awesome. And uh, then I tried to go online to buy it, and I couldn't. So she doesn't have it anymore. I don't think she needs it. So I wasn't sure if it was something you guys did together and that was what it was, the journal that you guys created, or if it was something separate from that. I yeah, no, well, I mean, the journal the journal we created together, um, yeah. the, the reason that's not available to purchase on Amazon is, is because it's part of our um, community program that we have called the Clubhouse, that when you become a member of the Clubhouse, you receive that as part of the package. And then just really quickly, the, the most recent books um, – that we've authored Brian's is mindset matters most and mine was uh, people pleasing almost killed me so those were came very close together in the in the last couple of years yeah they were released actually only a few months apart yeah, a few months yeah. apart awesome I don't know how I missed that but I'm glad that we did a shout out for that <laughs> I'm gonna read something from your website and then I want to discuss it you wrote depressed overweight broke near bankruptcy, lonely divorce, both of us at one time about 10 years ago. And we tried everything you tried because like you, we thought the answer had something to do with learning some kind of secret we didn't already know. Tell me the low. What was the lowest point? God, for individually and collectively. Yeah, because hey, yeah. we both have individual lows prior yeah. to coming together. Well, I mean, I topped out at about 285 pounds. Um, and I always say this, I, I, you know, I can be politically correct where I have to be. I can also be... Uh, reasonable and, and, and uh, empathetic when I have to be. When I'm talking about myself, I get to say whatever I want to say. So 285 pounds, I was fat. I was all kinds of fat. I wasn't portly or uh, big boned. I was fat, fucking fat as a matter of fact. Um, and that was when I was a fitness professional. 
which really adds to the mental despair of it all because people are counting on you to lead the way for them. Uh, but I couldn't stop cramming my pie hole with food and I couldn't get my ass to the gym. Um, it, it was a mental, emotional block, a, a mindset deficit. That, that physically was a massive low for me. Um, I was depressed, clinically depressed and suicidal for nearly 12 years uh, early in my life. Um, and the whole bankruptcy thing, I mean, I, I personally was almost at the kind of on the cusp of having to declare bankruptcy twice myself. And then we got together in the first few months, we got dangerously close to the same cliff, yeah. uh, you know, with, with about 50 some odd thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. So, I mean, the lowest I can remember you and I together. Uh, was when we lived in our first house, we were definitely in that 40 to 50K in debt range, no prospects or understanding of what we were doing in business, constantly fighting. And these were egregious fights. Like these were, these were loud, I throw shit at walls kind of fights. That was the lowest I remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, for me, uh, Personally, my my lowest low, gosh, I remember this moment so well. It's so funny how you can go back in time and remember moments. Um, you know, I was I was in I was married. I had two kids. My kids were young. They were like two and four, and um, the marriage was not 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 in a good position. It was one of one of my many abusive relationships that I, I was in at the time. Friendships, marriage, and and I say abusive relationships because I, I hate pinning it on the other person. Like I'm, if you're in an abusive relationship, you're a passive party to it, and I. You know, I was definitely a passive party to that. But I remember coming home uh, one day by myself. I had driven in the driveway and um, the unbelievable dread I felt for wanting to not be at home was so overwhelming. Like I just like I wanted to be anywhere else in the world. But there I felt an unbelievable amount of guilt because I had two young kids and that's where I, I, I should have wanted to be. Uh, but that was a turning point for me. That was the day that I knew I had to, I had to do something. Um, and then shortly after that, you know, I did get divorced. And then I experienced all the lows of single motherhood, you know, where I had to decide, for example, like I was so broke that I had to decide if I was going to put gas in my car on a given day to actually get to work or put food on the table that night. Um, so there's been a variety of moments where I was like, yep, this is the lowest point in my life. <laughs> It's fun to laugh with them now. It is fun it? to laugh. Yeah. It wasn't funny. Respectively, yes. Always. Right. Like I, well, I have a hundred percent success rate of getting through bad stuff. <laughs> but <Yeah. right. laughs> that doesn't mean the journey's very fun. I don't right. really like it. Exactly. So what was the turning point? What was that final argument that, that aha moment, the something's got to give that turned the tides to changing that? Yeah, I, I don't know if ours is going to be the same necessarily. Like harmonious. Oh, yeah. I can give mine if that's okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's actually something I've taught on our show. Um, so what we, we deal, what we teach is a lot of uh, mindset and spirituality. How how it's all very practical if you distill it down to some basic to dos every single day. And one of the things that's very, very important that we teach is something, a concept called learn your language. Learn your language is essentially the unconscious story that's trying to tell you what, it, what you really feel about yourself, about your spouse, about your life, your prospects, et cetera. But because we live in such an amped up motivational industry or society, 
we're always being told just to pump our fists, jump up and down, put on a happy face, and everything's going to be okay. Problem is the unconscious story doesn't go away unless we actively change it. Now, I say all that because I remember doing the work myself, the journaling, et cetera, that we teach now so robustly. And one of the things I had, it was a, it was a moment where I realized that, you know, Carrie's book was called People Pleasing Almost Killed Me. People, she was a people pleaser. It was a, it was a very challenging part of her unconscious psyche. And where she would, I suppose, get uh, attack oriented towards me or very, very emotional in a situation. And either of those would lead to a, a heightening and therefore a fight with us. I came to realize that in front of me was this little itty bitty girl, because she is so small, who I love uh, with dripping romance. And her tears and her anger are not who she is. Her tears and her anger is a frustrated shell around her where all she wants to do is express to me how she feels and love me properly, but she doesn't altogether know how. And in that moment, it just snapped to me that I need to see her in a more naked, vulnerable way that every time I saw tears or accosting words, I needed to reframe them as, as a beautiful young woman trying to love properly. And there was just a moment of clarity that sunk in. And I, I, I wish I could tell you it was on this day of this year, but it was within the last six years. I know that. <laughs> Uh, and that moment of clarity is when it all started to change for me because the compassion in that moment that I started to extend to my, my, my fiance at the time, I realized how much I had to be compassionate towards myself as well. That I was angry and I didn't know why I was angry, but it wasn't really me. I just wanted to love her well, love her kids well, build a business where we could help people and deliver them from the pain that we had seen and experienced ourselves. But that moment where I realized it was all a game of compassion, that's what changed everything for me moving forward. I love that. <laughs> I, this is a great question because I love that there's, you know, Dennis, you know sometimes I, I want to say that there was probably a lot of little moments that led up to the big moment. Um, but the one that sticks out in my mind, it's funny that you mentioned people pleasing. It's also funny that you mentioned compassion because those are two places that I was going to go, you know. Because I was such a people pleaser in the past, um, a lot of my change and a lot of my choices were catalyzed by satisfying what I thought Brian wanted. So it was all like externally motivated. It was very little of what I did was internally motivated. It was like, I mean, we talked about it, right? Like we used to get into these all out brawls where Brian would pack up his bag and leave. So for me as a people pleaser, I was like, okay, if we get into a situation, what do I have to do to make sure Brian doesn't leave? Which is a completely external motivator of change, right? It was, it was change based on fear of losing something that was so precious to me. But at the time, I thought that was the best thing to be motivated by because I, then he'll know that I love him and he'll stay. But for me, it all changed the day that I really accepted the fact that it had to be an accountability to myself. Mm. That really the change had to happen because I wanted the change to happen for me, regardless of whether Brian was going to walk out the door or not. And the second I was able to apply, so I was really good at applying compassion outward 
not as good applying compassion inward. But once I learned to say to myself, okay, you know what? No, nothing that's happening right now in my world is because of Brian or because of this. It's, it's because of me. And, and what is going on in my world? What mirror do I need to look in to create that change, but drive that change because of an internal decision, not an external one? That's the one that really, for me, was the big change. How do you figure out, because you're both saying very similar things. It's a look inward, have compassion outward, sort of both, both directions. <clears throat> How do you use that mirror to figure out exactly what it is you need to do within yourself mm. to mm. then be able to go outward? Can I, can I start? Of course. Okay, so, so our, our system runs off of one concept, and it's called the four A's which I suppose makes it four concepts, but it's one concept. <laughs> and these things go in order, okay? So the first A is called acceptance. And what are we accepting? Uh, and by the way, I should add, this is what Carrie taught the parents of the kids who had special needs she worked with. Mm. This is what I taught Olympic athletes. So what are we accepting at the first level? Well, from a spiritualistic standpoint, if you wanted to go that way, we're accepting ancient philosophy that says the kingdom of God is in us, that we are all powerful, all able, uh, all knowing, all present, that we have all the potential in the world, that a star in the heavens above uh, exploded one day and scooted stardust on the earth, and that is what formed us at the atomic level. We are stardust. We're capable of anything. That's the first thing you're accepting. If you want to put it into more scientific realms, we're about 16 trillion electrons worth of subatomic level. Now, an electron has no shape, no size, no discernible pattern. It doesn't do anything. It can do everything. So the only time an electron ever morphs to a particular pattern is when somebody observes it. What all of that means in practicality is that the shit that's going on right now isn't an absolute truth of reality. It's our perspective of reality. Two people can go through the exact same crap and they walk away with incredibly different perspectives on what happened and what's going to happen next. So if we just accept that my anger, my rage, Carrie's people-pleasing, her tears, our bankruptcy, my weight, et cetera, et cetera, is not an absolute truth of a concern. It's just a poor perspective. That's where we have to start because once we allow that as an acceptance, the door opens. Now, we move on to the second day immediately, which is awareness. Now, everyone talks about self-awareness, but let's bring it into a practical way. Our ego, our, our polar opposite, talks to us in four ways. Self-talk, so what we say to ourselves. Emotional profile, how we feel on a, on a daily basis. Physical profile, how our body feels on a daily basis. And behavior. Now, if I were to strip that down very simply, what we say to ourselves matters and most people are not nearly in tune with what their self-talk is our emotional profile matters and most people have low-grade anxiety and fear constantly and don't even know it okay so that and then the third one is how our physical uh, body responds most people have little bits of pain in their neck and their back and their hips without even it's just something we do we take advil whatever it's all there it's who i am and behaviors. How many times do we self-sabotage our weight training, our diet, our business? So 
those are the four things we want to gain awareness in. So when we talk about the second A being awareness and increasing self-awareness, we want people to start listening to what they're saying to themselves, to feel emotionally or express what is it they feel, where are the physical bobos, and how much are they self-sabotaging their, their claimed goals. It's an amazing thing, self-awareness, because the question often becomes, well, what do I do once I become aware? The answer is nothing. Because self-awareness, once you increase that, the change starts to happen. And that leads us to the third A, which is accountability, which Carrie already mentioned. It's not so much that I, and this, the world is a victim. It's the economy's fault, it's the president's fault, it's the Muslim's fault, it's the Democrat's fault, it's the man's fault, it's the woman's fault, it's everybody else's fault. But we don't take accountability for our part in the drama. Accountability isn't responsibility. We're not saying it's your fault, but it is your problem, right? And nothing changes until you decide to make constructive changes. So now we have this perfect grid. We accept it's all just a perspective. We become aware of what our perspective is, and we start to take accountability for changing that perspective. That puts us into the fourth A. We start to adapt. Everything starts to change all by itself. Was that too long? No. No. That was a no. lot, eh? Well, I'm saying no. It's Jen's <laughs> Maybe it was too long. That was my Canadian. Not too long, eh? <laughs> Not too long, eh? Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want me to add to that? Or did you if have you have something, yes, the whole new yeah. thing. I mean, just really quickly, because I, Brian already touched on it with regards to language, because I, I think, you know, in that's like the phil, phil, philosophy, the concept behind everything, but tools and practicality. Um, we have four pillars, which I won't go into all four of them, four pillars, which are four tools that we have everybody use. And the two most instrumental of the four are learn your language, which is essentially every day taking the time to, you know, five minutes a day to start to tune into what is your physical self telling you? What are your thoughts telling you? What are your emotions telling you in the negative form, right? Any negative thought, any negative feeling, any ne negative physical symptom or action is a product of something that's not serving us. And we probably want to work to, to create change there. So that's learn your language. And the other one is counting your wins, which is mm -hmm. something we encourage people to do um, ideally at the end of the day. So you're kind of putting a nice wrap and a nice bow on your day. But we spend so much time enumerating the things that don't go right in a day and all we're doing when we do that is we're re we're programming even further into our unconscious mind all the negative shit so when we ask people to count their wins the whole purpose of that is to bring to the conscious mind you know what this went wrong but what went right what did I do today? And like, we always talk it like about it. It's not about the, the big monumental wins. It's not like, oh, I made $30,000 today. I mean, that's a win. And maybe you take note of that, but it could be as small as I only had one Starbucks coffee today instead of three, you know, if you're, you know, if you're working on your finances, for example, right? So we always say it's, it's not about the aha moment. It's about the little aha wins along the way that create an aha life, yeah. right? So that's what the, the two kind of tools are that support what everything Brian just said. So once you look in, it's a matter of compound interest. Yes, yep. well said. Yep. I love compound interest because it can yeah. for you or against you. Yeah, right. Like, even in the friends you have, I tell my kids, once, they, once you learn compound interest, okay, look at your friends. That's compound interest. Right. And it can work for you or against you. Your lifestyle, your diet choices, everything in your life is compound interest. And you can get it to work for you. Yep. 
or you can allow it to work against you. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay, I'm going to ask a question that's totally switching gears because I want to know. You guys got married. There's a video. I've watched it because I cyber-stalked the shit out of you. And, <laughs> but you, you make a comment how one of you didn't know. So you did this event. Tell me about the event that you did. And then, like, how do you decide uh, we should probably get married and one of us doesn't know and surprise. And tell me about this because it's not clicking for me. Well, we, we owned a company called the Mindset Performance Institute, which we've since sold, but it was an educational company that taught people how to become mindset coaches. And we had an annual event, and this one was in Connecticut, um, at a, a good friend of ours. He was also part of the uh, staff and the, the executive uh, branch of the Mindset Performance Institute. Uh, we were hosting at his facility. And, you know, Carrie and I had talked forever. I had been married in the past and divorced. Carrie had been married and she'd been divorced. Neither one of us care about marriage. It's when I, when I look at contemporary marriage and I think to myself, gosh, like gay rights and marriage and this and that, I'm thinking to myself, you know, at some point in history, we made the mistake of saying, hey, we're really in love. Let's get the government involved in what we're doing. <laughs> like that was the error. So we, we aren't marriage people. If you want to get married and you're happy, great. If you don't, wonderful. It's just not, we don't care. So yeah, so having said that, I got this burr up my butt, and I said, you know, I know for a fact that Carrie loves my words. She loves when I, when I tell her, or you, Jen, or anybody, things about her, how I love her, etc. And I thought the ultimate place to do that would be in a ceremony, like a wedding ceremony. So then I called my friend, who, who we were hosting our event at his facility, and I said, hey, do you want to get ordained? Just go online, like it's free, just go get ordained. Because then it's legal. Uh, and then you want to preside over a surprise wedding that I'm going to hook up. And he was like, of course. So he got ordained. I didn't tell Carrie. I didn't tell the kids. Nobody knew except for me and our friend who had gotten ordained. Yeah. And we, we had the entire first day of the conference. It was a big hit. And I, I put out announcements. Hey, guys, uh, end of first day, stick around. Big, exciting event coming up at the end of the first day. And Carrie's like, oh, what's the event? What is it? Is it what, and I'm like, oh, well, we got dinner catered in, and we're going to surprise. No, a student of the year. Oh, yeah, student of the yeah. year. That's right. And we got a big dinner. We're going to surprise her. It's like, oh, that sounds like fun. And then at the right after the student of the year award, I said, like, everybody just kind of keep your seats because there's one more surprise, and nobody <laughs> knows, but I'm going to marry Carrie Campbell right now. He didn't say it like that. <laughs> he left me hanging for like three minutes or something like that. I even wrote her vows for her. It was so <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> okay, so Carrie was a monster, but the kids didn't know, like nobody. No, you know, that's actually a really interesting story because our kids weren't supposed to be with us in Connecticut. Yeah. There was a, a fluke incident that they ended up being with us for that event. So they had absolutely no idea either. It was a complete surprise yeah. for them. It was, it was great. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. If you watch the video back, you can see our son looking really confused. Yeah, and Maya, <laughs> our daughter, crying her eyes yeah. out. That I saw. So I thought maybe the kids were in on it. I, I could not put it all together. So <laughs> it wasn't like you guys hadn't talked about it or had that intent at some point. I mean, actually, we had it. Actually, you know, that, you know, that's the funny part about it is we had, we had pretty much decided we weren't going to get married. 
because we didn't really care about it. So I, it was a, like, it completely blew me away. I had absolutely, like, I knew that if, if Brian was doing, like the reason I cried so much is because I, I know our stance on marriage and I know it had nothing to do with the marriage. It had everything to do with the expression of love that he felt for me. Um, but it totally caught me by surprise because we, we had no plans on ever getting married. Wow. <laughs> That's how I felt. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, clearly. Okay. Well, I got that question answered. I'm still, I, that it's just, it's an amazing story. Like it wasn't enough in the beginning, you know, <laughs> let's add that one. So you guys took how you felt about each other, the baggage from the past, the jobs that you had, the degrees, whatever, however you want to say that. And it, you, you created this amalgam of information and story and you created your business yeah I mean yeah basically yeah we you know I think um, yes in short yes in a longer form yes um, you know we took all of the information that we knew from both uh, personal and professional experience yep. and study and um, found you know Brian's got a really uh, great knack at finding the hole you know and in the self-help industry there's a massive hole the massive hole is that everybody wants to change, but nobody really knows how to do it. You know, and so the number of times, like, you know, we people read Deepak Chopra books, and I love him, so I'm not like, great. you know, <laughs> but people read Deepak books, and they're like, oh, you know what, like, I that's it, true self. I want that. I want to know how to find that. But then they close their book, and they're like, okay, but now what, right? And so we, or people get motivated and hyped up from events. And they, they get home and three days later, they're like, but now what? And so for Brian and I, what we came together to create was essentially the bridge between this is where you are and that's where you want to be. And here's how you're going to get there simply and easily and create sustainability for the rest of your life. Yeah. So we took all of our information. We tried and tested multiple things with ourselves, with clients years ago. And we found, you know, where we're at now, which is, you the know, sweet spot. the sweet spot. Absolutely. So I've done a lot of the conferences and all that stuff too. One thing that is prevalent in my mind is the word fear, which is not untrue. So what fears are holding you back? What fears you need to, you know, and, and you go through this list of fears, none of which I personally have. It may hit 98% of the population that you're speaking to. You come at it from a completely different vocabulary. So your vocabulary is eliminating your limits. Yeah. Okay, it still could be fear-based, but not necessarily. It comes from a more um, positive vocabulary. So now you have all of this free content, which is amazing. And people can find like a shit ton. It's amazing. Tell me where that ends and your clubhouse picks up. And I know you're good at finding the holes in things and figuring this out, but you really come at it from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's very refreshing from someone like myself who's like, I don't need to hear about my fears anymore. I get it. I get it. But you have this, so talk to me about that stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if I were to make it just as simple and plain as possible, and this is part of the free stuff we give away, um, we've done all the research on the neuroscience and the physiology and everything else related to the brain and the unconscious mind. Uh, we've corroborated it with all the spirituality from Buddhism and Hinduism and the 
the, the truly ancient philosophies of Vedic and how they all transpose to today. And essentially, we've combined all of that to say, look, it, if you really want to change your mind and your spirit, then it boils down to four exercises that you do every single day. And those four exercises could take a collective of five minutes uh, or ambitiously an hour. It's kind of up to you. We don't tell people how to do it. We, we always joke, you know, somebody will say, what's the very best exercise in the world for me if I want to get in shape? And our answer is the one you're going to do. That's the best exercise, right? So what's the best way to do these four tools? Well, the way you're going to do them every day, that's the best way. But essentially, it boils down to this. First of all, we want to count our wins. The human brain is programmed to be very negative. That is evolutionary. That is biology. It's no one's fault. We are just negative beings in the gray matter. But we can change the synaptic connections. We can change our perspective fluidly over time if we opt to locate the wins of every single day and every single situation and focus on those. It doesn't mean that bad's not going to happen. It goes back to the first day. It means that our perspective changes when that bad happens. We start to see wins all the time. And if you've ever worked with somebody who's negative, 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 and you've shown them how to count wins and help them do it simply and consistently, they physically look like different people two weeks later because their, their perspective on life has changed. So that's the number one exercise. Uh, the number two exercise is called review your direction. Now, this is a simple bypass of what we know to be true about the human brain. Whatever we put in the actual conscious brain and focus on on a regular basis, we begin to change the language of the unconscious mind. So we all have goals. We all have ambitions. The biggest problem is people know they want to lose 25 pounds. They know they want to start a company and make a million dollars, but they don't talk about it or review that on a daily basis. So you, you put it like a New Year's resolution. You put it in your brain one time, and then you kind of stop thinking about it. And by January 21st, you're no longer working towards it. So review your direction is just a matter of consciously bringing your goal to top of the mind every single day in any number of ways that we teach. Uh, the third exercise is called learn your language, which Carrie's already profiled. We all have unconscious stories, and most of those stories do not serve us. We call ourselves fat. We call ourselves uh, unworthy. We call ourselves unlucky. We call ourselves, oh, we're not good enough for this or that or that person. Now, that, that is a limit that is going to hold you back forever. It's not bad that it's there. We all have limits. But rather than pretending they don't exist, Take a big bright light and shine it on those shadows so we start to become accustomed to understanding where we're holding ourselves back. And that's a very simple process as well. The last exercise, which really is, it can be done a million different ways, but we call it imagine your outcome. The unconscious is the most powerful thing on the planet, but for all the power it has, it's stupid. It doesn't know what is real versus what's imagined. So just all we ask you to do is take the vision of what you want to accomplish and imagine it being done every single day for two minutes to 20 minutes. Just imagine it nonstop. The unconscious doesn't know that that vision isn't real. So it starts to adopt that vision as your language. And what most people don't get because it really is science and it's very simple, it's not as mystic as people realize, the unconscious 
drives your actions and your habits and your behaviors. The easiest example is weight loss. Nobody is confused that an apple is better than Doritos. But then why do people keep choosing Doritos? Because in the unconscious mind, they have a story that they're fat, that they'll always be fat, that they have no control over food. That story drives the action, habit, and behavior that they take every single day. If we change that story by imagining a different outcome, we change the actions. We change our behaviors. We change our habits completely. So those four exercises are what we suggest everybody do. And in terms of it going into the clubhouse, well, I have no idea how much it costs. I do know it's like pennies a, uh, a day. I know that. Is that right? It's like pennies a day. Am I right? It's, 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 it's like three bucks a day. It's less than that. It's less than three bucks a I, day. I can do the math while you're doing it. But my, my point is this. Inside the clubhouse, it's an accountability port. $1.81 a day. $1.81 a day. It's an accountability port. The two reasons people don't reach their goals is they have a bad circle of influence who doesn't support them, and they have no accountability. So what the clubhouse is, it's a community of people, all of whom have different goals, but every day inside the clubhouse, they're practicing those four exercises. Yeah. And we facilitate that. That was a lot. I talk a lot. It was a lot to say, though. It was all <laughs> necessary. Well, and it was excellent for me because I've done so much of my homework. So if somebody were looking into you and wondering, that clarifies what I, the mystery of the clubhouse to me. Right. Yeah. Um, so, okay, great. I get your, the Facebook, um, message prompts. <laughs> awesome. But what's my motivation after that? And that explained it, which is what I wanted. So okay. now people know. So I want to jump back to something you said earlier and it is you, Brian, but Carrie, I want you to jump in on this as the outside looking in clinical depression and suicide. Was it suicidal thoughts, tendencies, actions? Because your work, Carrie's working with kids that have special needs, that, and suicide's one of those like no demographic, no statistic, no way to know, right? It would be great if we could pin it down a little, but we can't. But I know in the special needs community, it's a, it's a little bit. You look at it a little bit differently. Your approach is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. What was that like from the outside looking in, and what did you do, Brian? working through that is it still a daily battle is it where are you at yeah no i'm 100 percent cured uh, i mean really i i don't know the last time i was like sad for more than a couple hours let alone depressed mm. uh and i love telling the story to be brutally honest um i didn't take any uh, drugs there was no medication there was medication prescribed i didn't take even one pill one time nor did i seek therapeutic intervention um I think that a lot, uh, I have a lot of disdain for that industry. I, ha I, I believe it helps a large number of people in many ways, and that's good. Those, those therapists are wonderful. But I think we've become a society that talks about the problem a lot, that uh, prescribes medication all the time, every time, no matter what. We box people into diagnosis because that's what we have to do to sustain the pharmaceutical prescription. Um, what I did was very simple. Uh, yes, I was clinically depressed for 12 years, but I was also very young. I was about 17 when it hit. Um, I started learning about quantum physics. I know it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But when I, when I got a glimpse of the fact that there is no such thing as reality, there's perspective, my perspective of reality, 
that's when everything started to change for me because I recognized that I wasn't broken, that I wasn't bad. I wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong to be sad. It wasn't wrong to be depressed. It simply is where I was right at that moment because of the perspective I had. So if I could learn to change my perspective, could I learn to not be depressed? And guess what? That's exactly what happened. And the next question people often ask is, well, how did you do that? The four exercises I just explained. Truly, there, there, it's like a magic wand. And I'm not saying that in a hyperbolic way. When you learn to change your perspective, you can do anything. Anything. Absolutely. And it's remarkable. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't know Brian when he was suicidal and depressed in, in, that, in that way. So I can't speak as an outsider looking in on that one. But, you know, I mean, I... Can I, I have a lot of inside scoop to a lot of people in very, you know, in my private coaching practice, cause I do still do private coaching and, um, and I'm talking like, you know, people who, you know, work nine to five people who are stay at home moms, people who are, you know, high level multimillionaires. And I don't know if there's any of them who haven't at one point in time had a suicidal thought had a thought of, I wish I wasn't here, or I wish I could just get away. I think it manifests in multiple different ways. Um, but I think it's the, the final state of emotional reactivity when the pain gets too much. Um, so for me, it all comes down to the, to the mindset of it all and everything that Brian just said. Um, when I do have people who might experience that as a, as a reactive state, um, that's exactly what I tend to look at it as, as a reactive state. Um, what do we have to do to interrupt the patterns before we get to that place is what we have to talk about. Um, and that's what, that's where our focus always goes. Yeah. I, I love the way you phrase that. We, we really like to interrupt the pattern rather than intervene when there's a crisis. That's, that's where we yeah. land ourselves in working with people. Exactly. And it's a more preventative medicine, holistic outlook, which yes. would be healthier if we'd all get on board with that. I also think, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, I also wanted to add that I think that if it was more readily taught mm -hmm. to, uh, to help oneself rather than rely on help from others or other things, yeah. society would be, that, and that's what we do. We help people learn to pattern interrupt as opposed to have to intervene externally because we're in crisis. And that, that leads to sustainability, and yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Well, and you're not, then you're not in crisis mode all the time. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. It shouldn't be an ER visit every single time. Anyway. Well said. Exactly. So I want to ask you a question about minimalism because we have a, a friend in common. Somehow that came up in your conversation with her. Do you guys have a minimalistic lifestyle? We do have a minimalistic yeah. lifestyle. Yeah, we, um, we, so we've, we've kind of done various different things on minimalism. And I think that, for, I think minimalism means something to everybody individually, right? So for us, I guess the best way to say it, like the way it, it's a spiritual thing more than anything else. It's a, it's a life path process. You know, we, we literally, we rent our homes and all our homes are furnished. So our worldly possessions literally fit into four suitcases. That's like all of us, like together, fits. like yeah. we each have one suitcase that we can, we can fit our possessions into. Um, it teaches the process to our kids. And, you know, for us, we practice it as well as not having attachment to objects. 
and to things, but you know, attach, you know, ex attachment to life and experience and, and the world around us. So yeah, I mean, you want to. I mean, it, it, the genesis of it really was rather innocent. I think that like a lot of people, Carrie and I realized one day that we had too much stuff, mm. and uh, you know, we had a, a four-bedroom, two-story home and uh, on an acre of land, and we barely went into one of the rooms, which was the largest room in the house. Right. We just had too much stuff. And so we decided just to play with the concept of minimizing. It was, it was not minimalism at the time. It was just kind of purging to a degree. Right. Uh, but it got really contagious. And we, addictive. Yeah. So we kept going and kept going. And within about six months, we had moved ourselves and our two kids from a four-bedroom, two-story home into a very small three-bedroom apartment. Uh, which was awesome, and we we didn't have a lot of, but even then we had more stuff than we needed. We had way more right? than now. Yeah, yeah. So so we kind of kept going, and now it's a wardrobe thing. It's a like I said, we rent beautiful homes. They're always furnished. We never have furniture that we own, um, and we have a, what we call a four suitcase lifestyle. And every one of them in the family gets a suitcase, and your possessions belong in that suitcase, and that's it. The whole reason for us, I think, is twofold. Uh, we wanted to feel a freedom that I think a lot of people are very vacant of. We can, we can move in 25 minutes. That's our like over under. It takes our family 25 minutes to pack up all the shit we have and move to a different place or a different country if we want to. And although we don't do that at this moment in time, there's a freedom that it feels. We're not stuck anywhere at any one time. And the other reason is that, um, we really didn't want our kids to become uh, materialistic, but for their own sake, not because, you know, we wanted to adopt them into our philosophy. It's kids are kids and they want this, and they want that, and they want this. And we kind of taught them the worth of a dollar and how we invest in ourselves and how we pay ourselves first. And we think about our future and we still spend money, but we do so mindfully and blah, blah, blah. So those are the two reasons we did it. And I'll be honest, I can never go back. Me neither. You know, yeah. it's so funny that just talking about it, it's almost as if I forget that we don't have stuff until yeah. someone brings it up. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, we don't have any stuff. Right. You know, and, and there's just a liberation. I mean, we even are, you know, our show, Brian and Carrie in the morning, we even had our live stream consultants build us what's called a mobile studio so that our entire studio folds down into one pelican case and can be transported anywhere in the world. Um, so it's just, there's a freedom that exists within it. So true. And we are the same lifestyle and I talk about it a lot outside of interviewing you. So that's something that Kareem knew about me. And I think Carrie, you made a comment. You said all of my art is on my body. Yes, I and did. Oh, wow. That's so great that she remembered that. <laughs> well, she, she's like, you would love Carrie because you guys have that same way of thinking. Yeah, I have tattoos everywhere. So yeah. um, people don't realize if you want to reduce stress, there, there's one super easy way you can do that, and that's start getting rid of the shit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, and we did it, and, you know, we have 13 kids, and two years ago we had 12 living at home. And people are like, your house must be huge. And I'm like, it's 1,700 square feet. Right. Which may be big for a minimalist who's really strict about minimalism, but we have 12 kids in that space. Right. How right. do you do that? Well, we don't have stuff. Yeah. We didn't get rooms to fill with stuff. So, yes, I love that. Okay, I want to end on, on tidbits because you have a very loving, nurturing, romantic relationship together. But you were very open about the yelling, screaming, throwing things at the wall. 
Yeah. So shift for me in relationships, because it's not just in marriages or partners, but in your relationships with people, how was that shift from that angry state into that more romantic, loving state? And what do you do to maintain it? Because if if Dane came home with flowers, I'd be like, why did you spend the money on that? I don't even own a vase. Okay. <laughs> so it's that's not a, romance in the traditional yeah. sense, right? Always. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a loaded question because I could, uh, relationships happens to be my favorite topic. So I could say a thousand things right now. Um, so I, I'm going to actually address the, in my opinion, one of the most powerful ways to shift out of the yelling and screaming into the working together is um, based on the whole notion of understanding instead of relating. Thank you so much so I, I for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. Like, you know, I welcome input you know, with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My so Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. You know, like and if you still want idea, more, like, well, sign up you know, for one of my coaching packages. Who would ever do anything like that? And then we get angry, we get frustrated. Or our partner doesn't respond to us the way that we want them to respond to us. So we get angry at them for not giving them what, giving us what we need, right? But the reality is, is every single person tries their best on, they honestly do. And more often than not, your partner is merely giving you what they are the ones, what they would want to receive, right? So we spend so much time trying to relate to our partner when really what we need to do is understand. We need to understand that our partners are trying. We need to understand that our partners have, you know, limiting beliefs just like we do, that our partners, you know, maybe we can't relate to the fact that, you know, I couldn't relate to Ryan throwing things, but he couldn't relate to me crying every day. But we could understand that those were both products of expression of frustration and anger, right? And the second we stopped trying to relate, aka stop trying to change what our partner's doing, you're actually able to step into your accountability better. Because you're like, you know what, I don't need to change him. I don't need to relate to this. I merely need to understand and then ask myself, what can I do to better the situation? I, I'm going to add one thing if I could. Yeah. Um, if you went to a nutritional coach and said, I'd like to lose weight, what should I eat? A good nutritional coach will say one question back. Well, what are you eating now? The reason is, is that I can't possibly tell you what you need until I know what you're currently doing. Assessment. Is, is the name of the game in so many industries. Before we increase our business, we have to see, we have to assess what's our business doing now. These are common things. So this is a very non-romantic way of phrasing it, but it actually has changed a lot for us. Um, there's a really famous book that we advocate oh, everybody read, The Five Love Languages. Oh yeah. Yeah, I tell you, you know, it's changed so much. Like it's an assessment, right? I did not know that as a receiver of love, um, you know, what, what's the Here's acts, of service. acts of service mean more to me than anything else. And I did not know that words meant more for Carrie than anything else. And it's so like here, you flowers, I could go and buy flowers and Carrie would be like, what the fuck you buy me flowers for? Right? And she wouldn't be rude. It's just, I don't, flowers, the fuck do we need flowers for? Can I give an example but, of that? No, go I was going to say yeah. one last thing is that like, but you know what? Every single morning, Carrie makes coffee, and I uh, uh, put the cream and the sugar in, in, in the two mugs, and just so, because I take a bit more cream than she takes, I, every morning, I write a little note, and I point to my cup, and I write moi, because I'm not French, but she is, so I try so hard to be French. I write moi, I, this is for me, and then I point to her cup, and I write down a French sentence, like something goofy, like, uh, I love you and your feet. 
like something stupid. <laughs> but you know what? It's a word. It's words for her. And you, that little act of writing a small 15-second little note every single morning in appreciation for her making coffee <laughs> has meant the world to her. It's so easy yeah. if you just assess and know your partner well. It becomes romance is so simple yeah. at that point. It was a clusterfuck before that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was just an interesting thing because words are my thing and acts of service are Brian's. So, like, he's a, he's a writer, and while he was, you know, before he moved here, he used to write me poetry all the time. But when we first, when he first moved here, he stopped, and I'd be like, I don't understand why you stopped that. Like, you stopped, you you know, I get so upset, and I'm like, I don't know why. <laughs> And he would be like, you don't know why. Like, he goes, I don't understand. Like, look at everything that I did for you. Like, I moved to another country and et cetera. But, like, if you listen to that, that's me saying, you took the words away from me, which is what makes me feel loved. And that's him saying, but I have been loving you because an act of service for him is the greatest de delivery of love. Exactly. Once we figured that out, man, we... Simple pimple. Yeah, simple pimple. I love love language. I, I used to teach it, and I... I quiz all my kids, and I'm a quality time girl. Actually, I'm a direct split of quality time and physical contact. Right on. Like, even. And I I don't like taking my kids to the store anyway, but one of my kids used to ask for shit all the time. Like, not big stuff, but, well, he's gifts. Yeah. He the love And I was like, oh, my God, I am so sorry. If yeah. I literally bring home a pack of gum and go, hey, Taylor, this is for you. He's like, well, the, kid, the kid will be in tears when he's yeah. our, daughter, our, our daughter. daughter's the same way. Yeah. And yes. I, had, I mean, all it was, it's the easiest test you could possibly take. And it's, so Brian, what I think is interesting though, anybody who understands love languages, you took words and made them an act of service. Yeah, yeah, yeah well said. Yeah, I agree. Because you have to, you give love the way you want to receive it and sure. vice versa. And so, like, I can see you cleaning the car and her being like, that's nothing. Um, and I, I, that. I could never understand why it, it meant so much to him when I used to go to the store for him or take the garbage out. I'm like, I don't really, I'll take the garbage out for you every day. It's all good. I don't understand. So basically, figuring out how you like to give and receive love was the biggest thing that brought romance to your relationship. It really is. Because we I all mean, want to feel love and secure. Absolutely. And we already had the whole sex thing down. We're like, <laughs> we're loving the sex stuff and our romance on that level was great. But it was the small idiosyncratic stuff day to day that love languages really helped, helped us find clarity. I agree. And that's what I always say. I'm physical contact and quality time. So I just need to have more sex. Yes. <laughs> Always That's more sex. For me. <laughs> not with you. Not you like are uh, uh, words and uh, touch. touch. Yeah. 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 I'm quality time and uh, acts of service. That's right. right. I don't need shit. I don't need gifts. Or no. I text message him to say to him, like, I love you. He's like, why the fuck are you texting me? But now <laughs> I have to return a text. Now I have I to respond. <laughs> That's why she's texting you. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for being on the thank podcast. You. Well, you agree, Jen. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.